Welcome to the Paralegal Voice, where you hear the latest issues and trends in the world of paralegals and legal assistance by one of the best-known paralegals in the industry, Vicki Voisin. A paralegal for more than 20 years, Vicki is dedicated to helping legal professionals reach their goals. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Paralegal Voice here on Legal Talk Network. I'm Vicki Voison, the Paralegal Mentor and host of the Paralegal Voice. I'm an ALA Advanced Certified Paralegal, and I publish a weekly e-newsletter titled Paralegal Strategies. I'm also the co-author of The Professional Paralegal, A Guide to Finding a Job and Career Success. You'll find more information at paralegalmentor.com. My guest today is Doug Kaminsky, Vice President of Sales West and Canada at Actians, a global leader in communication, collaboration, and social media governance, helping professionals everywhere engage with customers and colleagues so they can unleash their social business. And welcome, Doug. Thanks for having me, Vicki. Delighted. Now, before we begin, our sponsors should be recognized and thanked. That would be NALA, a professional association for paralegals providing continuing education and professional certification programs for paralegals at NALA.org. That's N-A-L-A dot org. NALA is a force in the promotion and advancement of the paralegal profession. And also serve now a national network of trusted, pre-screened process servers. They work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit servenow.com to learn more. The goal of the Paralegal Voice is to discuss a wide range of topics that are important to the paralegal industry and share with you leading trends, significant developments, and resources you'll find helpful in your career and everyday job. Guests are usually included to help explore timely topics, and for that reason, I've invited Doug Kaminsky to be on this month's show. Now, many of you already know Doug, and in fact, while I know a lot of paralegals throughout the United States and beyond, I think Doug has me beat because, honestly, everywhere I go, Doug's there. He's everywhere. So as Vice President of Sales West and Canada at Actance, Doug is an experienced technology sales professional with deep expertise within the corporate, legal, and IT arenas. He's often requested as a speaker nationwide, and I have to tell you he's a great speaker. He speaks on topics including corporate compliance and governments, social media, security, and electronic discovery, and his specialties include litigation, electronic discovery, sales management, technology security, corporate compliance, corporate governance, information governance, archiving, social media, and also enterprise software. I have to tell you, Doug is funny, and Doug is smart. Doug's a huge fan of paralegals because he knows that paralegals influence the technology used by the legal profession. So, as I said, Doug's smart. Doug's stated mission in life is to inject everything he does with both passion and humor while creating growth and value for all involved. And as far as I can tell, Doug, you are right on with your mission. Oh, thanks, Vicki. You'll have to tell me your PayPal handle so I can make a deposit in your account. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> now, now um, every time I go to a meeting, Doug is there with the latest technology. He has all the toys, and it's always fun to see what he's, you know, what he's up to. So, Doug, technology has changed, you know, it's changed our world. That includes companies and also law firms. So, please tell our listeners about those changes. Well, you know, that's a good question, Vicki, is one thing I've seen that's probably impacted us the most in terms of business and technology is really the way we communicate. And by that, I mean, if you think about how often you're on Facebook or on your handheld device, we're communicating in different ways than we used to. Um, we're not just picking up the phone and we're not just using email. We're using instant messaging. We're using collaboration systems like Jive and SharePoint and IBM's Connections. And we're using social media. And more importantly, this is being used more and more in business communications. Just think about the number of emails you've responded to via LinkedIn. And most times those aren't going through, say, company email systems. So you're using these kind of alternative real-time communications. And it's interesting because there's a lot of things going on around that, case laws developing around that, uh, because, again, it's just another form of communication. And, and if you get nothing else from our, our talk today, remember, it's what we say and how we communicate it that matters not so much the fact that it was on social media or a phone call or an email. So it doesn't really matter as long as we remember to say the right things. Yeah, that's definitely a part of it. Uh, yeah. Substantive business communications are taking place in these real-time communications. Confidential information is being shared, whether it's about cases or uh, personally identifiable information like credit card numbers, social security numbers. And we have to apply the same standards that we have for email and for other conversations. Okay, so just a different kind of communication. So I understand that it's really common to archive email, but that's not quite enough, is it? No, you know, you're absolutely right. It's uh, Prior to this time, we've been thinking of these real-time communications as, you know, a bit more ephemeral or more like water cooler conversations. But the problem is, is that we're having these substantive conversations. We're having content that needs to be preserved. So whether it's in the context of regulations or... Uh, litigation, we're starting to see it more and more be compelled. And so if we're not preserving it, like we're doing with our email, if we're not archiving our instant messaging, if we're not archiving the social media uh, and the other channels that we're having these business communications on, we're going to run into problems. Well, I know there are a lot of regulatory requirements, so tell us about those. Sure. Well, as you know, there's a big alphabet soup of government agencies out there and if you're in particular industries that are heavily regulated, you know, banking, insurance, financial, you've got a lot of those from FINRA, from the SEC, and some of your other governing bodies like the FFEIC and others. Um, but then we go downstream from there into, say, Gramm-Leach-Bliley or into the federal rules, which are all very familiar with in the legal world. And those have a lot of requirements as well with regards to retention, uh, depending on the disposition and the people. So if you're, you have regulated employees, like, say, financial advisors, we've got to maintain those records. If we've got energy traders, we need to be able to maintain those records. And just because they're not using email and they're using instant messaging instead or using social media, we still have that same duty to preserve and to retain just to satisfy regulatory requirements or downstream litigation requirements. Okay, then tell me what happens, and I'm sure it's not good, when a company fails to comply with those regulatory requirements. Oh, you know, you're absolutely right. It's not a good thing. A great example is the day after Christmas, and this is a particularly notable uh, fine, but Barclays, 
which is a large financial company, was fined nearly $4 million simply for failing to preserve Bloomberg Instant Messaging. So a lot of their financial folks, even though it was mostly internal conversations, were, were conversing via this kind of channel that they use. They're using Bloomberg IM. And they didn't preserve it, and they were found to be wanting, and so they received a fine of almost $4 million. And it was notable because it was the day after Christmas. So regulators working during the holidays to make a point usually means it's a pretty bad thing. And along with that, we've been seeing a lot more cases, uh, and the case law has been growing around these real-time communications. So we're starting to see sanctions, starting to see adverse inference, and large penalties. Uh, seven, sometimes eight-figure penalties uh, where we're running into issues because we didn't preserve that data, and we could have. Okay, this may not quite be the right place for this question, but it's been in the back of my mind as we've been going along. I understand the archiving of email, and I understand the archiving of instant messages, but how do you do that with uh, LinkedIn, with Twitter, with uh, Facebook, what do you, where do you put it? Or do you just leave it hanging out there and, and let people find it later? That's a great question. And, you know, up until this time, we've been seeing uh, evidence from Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter typically being used for criminal cases or for, say, insurance fraud, things of that nature. But it's starting to pop up more and more now in civil litigation and in HR matters. And you can indeed preserve it in a number of ways. You can either do that reactively, and there are a number of good tools out there that allow you to what we call scrub the screen and to grab whatever is available. Um, but you can do it proactively as well. Uh, our company has created uh, APIs, kind of hooks, into those social networks. So we can even capture things like modified and deleted posts. And we tie in at the account level. So even if they're uh, doing this on their handheld or at mom's computer on th- during Thanksgiving, um, we'll still be able to capture all that information. But there's, of course, that balance between regulatory need uh, or litigation need and privacy. And, of course, never step over that boundary. Well, how do you keep from stepping over that boundary? Well, that, that's a great question. There are some that, using, say, the screen scrubbing kind of technique, are really only able to capture the things that are considered public. So if you set your privacy settings such that uh, the juiciest things aren't being seen, then obviously you won't be able to do that. You can't really compel someone to give the username or password. Um, the National Labor Relations Board and all kinds of other litigation have kind of borne that out. But when we're looking at the people that have the biggest need, and that is usually those in heavily regulated environments, there's definitely a higher standard of care. Right. And so tying in at the account level uh, via an API, it's kind of like uh, if you've ever installed a game, and come on, you can admit it, I know you have. <laughs> always a little button that says allow or deny. Right. So our little program installs the same way. You just click allow, and then we'll sit there in the background and allow it to capture the things that are necessary without really looking at all the personal stuff. Okay. Uh, and it, this is very both financial advisors, for example, or insurance advisors. They expect to have that higher standard of care and often have a separate business as well as personal Facebook, LinkedIn account, et cetera. Right. Now, when I go out to speak to, especially corporations, and while I do this in law offices also, I will tell them not to use the their employer's server or their, their program to send their email, that they've got to keep that separate, because if they're sending things on the employer's account, and vice versa, if they're sending employer's things on their personal account, this is all discoverable. 
and you want to keep that separated if you can. You're absolutely right. It, uh, there is definitely some precedent for that. But by the same token, because communications are evolving, um, we've been seeing a lot more incidents of, say, people using Gmail uh, or some other kind of webmail to do the more nefarious things. And we're still finding that it's the conversation and it's the content that's determinative. So even okay. though you absolutely should co-mingle your personal and your business, especially on a company computer, we're starting to see more and more people are using these things that are non-business to communicate for business reasons. And it is kind of kind of blending and merging. So I wouldn't say it's not discoverable. I'm saying we're starting to see more and more evidence that uh, the bench, as well as regulators and others, are taking notice of the fact that what is being said is much more important as where it's being said. Well, it's time to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, NALA, the Association of Legal Assistants, Paralegals, and serve now a nationwide network of trusted pre-screened process servers. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Doug Kaminsky, Vice President of Sales West and Canada for Actians, Inc. NALA means professional. NALA offers classroom and web-based continuing education and professional development for all paralegals. And NALA's certified paralegal credential has been a gold standard of professionalism for over 30 years. More than 15,000 paralegals have this certification, and nearly 2,000 have achieved the demanding advanced certified paralegal. NALA works actively with others in the legal field to promote the value of paralegals and to advance paralegal professionalism. See more about why NALA means professional at www.nala.org. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. Welcome back to the Paralegal Voice. I'm Vicki Voison, and my guest today is Doug Kaminsky. I'm chatting with Doug about corporate compliance and governance, social media, security, and electronic discovery. So thanks for being here, Doug. Well, thanks, Vicki. Always a pleasure talking with you. It seems like, uh, as I said, uh, I go to a meeting and all of a sudden, Doug walks in. So um, you have a bunch of friends all over the United States, Doug. Great following. Before we go on, I want to tell our listeners that this information is important to them, whether they work in a law firm or whether they work for a corporation. Is that that true? It absolutely is. So as as we mentioned before in the first half of the show, Um, we're starting to see more and more real-time communications being used. And it's almost um, non-exclusive of job function. And I'll give you a quick example. I was in my bank the other day. I'm actually one of those weird people that goes into a bank now and then, doesn't just do it online. And the teller said, oh, I see you in here now and then. What do you do? And I said, well, I'm in the software business. Oh, that's interesting. What kind of software? I said, well, actually, your bank uses our product, and they can use it to monitor instant messaging to see if 
any confidential information is being passed, social security numbers, credit card numbers, account numbers, dates of birth. And she said, well, I do that all the time. I said, really? She goes, oh, yeah. It's way easier than email, and I can get an instant response. So we do that all the time. We're other branches and other people within the organization. We're IMing back and forth with account information and um, credit card information, all kinds of things, because it's just way easier to get back and forth. So that kind of really brings... Here's just a bank teller, right? Um, but she handles a lot of confidential information, and that information is flowing back and forth via instant messaging. So whether you're in a law firm uh, or you're in a corporation, this is definitely an important topic. Now, Doug, before we went on break, we were discussing regulatory requirements and what happens when a company fails to comply with those. And, and so now I'd like to tell our listeners why it's so important to preserve this data. Well, there's a number of reasons, Vicki, for preserving it. And it said some of the some of the obvious ones are, I'd say, it's the first tier. It's the regulatory reasons for doing so. So it could be that you have record retention requirements, or it's even say related to Sarbanes-Oxley, and you need to, for your 302 and 404 attestations, be able to say that we have control over this information. That's one part of it. Uh, but the rest of it, as you cascade downstream, is um, again the evidentiary reasons for doing so. This data still lives. It's out there on your server, typically. Uh, if you're using, say, Microsoft Link for instant messaging or SharePoint, a lot of it resides out there. So it can be gotten to, regardless of what your retention periods are. And so it kind of uh, requires a little different mindset, and we have to start treating it more like permanent records. And the companies in the heavily regulated spaces understand that, but as you kind of cascade down through a little less and less, stringent regulation to more basic regulation, um, there's still a need for it, but we haven't really addressed it. You know what I find interesting is that a lot of this is happening because of our need for such rapid communication. You know, for, for a while, I mean, we only used the phone, and then people started using email. But now, even a, as with that bank teller, email is not even fast enough, so they want to do instant messaging. It's that rapid communication that really can, I think, get us in a, in a lot of trouble, but that's how it is today. You just have to go with it and, and to be careful. So, you know, how can a company check for leakage of confidential information and, and other violations? Well, sure. Yeah, that's a, a great question as well, because so far what we've been talking about is kind of the after effect, right? How do we keep this information? How do we retain this information? But another aspect of these real-time communication channels is, how do we monitor them? How do we ensure, like with that bank teller, that information isn't necessarily getting outside of our four walls? Or if it's conversations internally and might be used downstream, you know, how do we get a read on this before? Maybe even uh, avoid a lawsuit. And, and I'll give you an example of that. Because uh, there are systems that will allow you to do it. Our company has um, one of the only ones, but there's some others out there that are starting to pop up. And there are ways that you can check on an active basis to be able to find out what's going on. Here's an example. Uh, there's a company, uh, had some engineers. Uh, this is out in the uh, Silicon Valley area. And there was one engineer that had a previous history of, um, say, altercations with another employee and threatened this employee via instant messaging. So because the company had already had a system in place to monitor, in this case it was ours, within hours they were at the employee's desk uh, and escorting them out of the building because the threats were serious enough. The security team was alerted immediately because 
a policy violation happened. There was words that were used that were threatening, uh, and they had a zero-tolerance policy, so they were able to check that. So they could have avoided what could have been a very nasty HR issue, uh, as well as potentially criminal issues or negligence on the company's part. That's interesting. I think that... um I think that more people should be aware that this is, you have the ability to do this. But why now, why, since we're speaking to paralegals, why is it so important for them to, uh, to be familiar with these issues? It's, it's important for them uh, as well as their employer, right? Oh, it absolutely is. And if you think about the mission of a paralegal, you know, we're, you're not legal secretaries. You are paraprofessionals. So it behooves you to know more about this than sometimes even the attorneys, because uh, many times the attorneys are very busy in their particular specialty, but a paralegal has to be more versatile, has to be more well-versed, and that's how you add significant value into that equation. Uh, if it just gets to be transactional in nature, it's not that interesting. And let's face it, it gets kind of boring if you're doing the same thing all the time. So learning about these new things, keeping up on the technology makes a lot of sense. For those that are involved in litigation, there's what we call the Zubalik duties. And, you know, legal professionals today, especially paralegals, pretty much have to be technologists as well as legal professionals. So we've got to know the law and how to apply it, but also know how technology intersects with that. And so it definitely is good for paralegals to understand that this is a growing area of concern, that case laws are growing, and that paralegals can learn more about this so they can actually add more value, whether it's you know, informing on custodial interviews and depositions, whether it's looking for things that others might not have considered. Doug, I want to back up just a minute and talk about the Zubalik issues. I don't think all our listeners know about that, so can you just give us a, you know, a brief idea of what, what's going on with that? Oh, absolutely. This is obviously very simplistic terms, but when we talk about Zubalik and the Zubalik decisions and some of the subsequent ones, what it really gets down to is, Legal professionals, and it's called out as attorneys, but let's face it, paralegals are the ones who are um, often the power behind the throne. We're the ones that make sure that the things get done that need to or look out for the things that weren't. And the Zubilee's duties very, very simplistically are this, and that is we have to understand how our enterprise customers, how our clients, in essence, communicate and how they store their information and where the information resides and how they use technology to be able to better counsel them when it comes to litigation downstream or internal investigations or what have you. So part of those Zubalik duties are indeed that. They're understanding how customers, our clients, I mean, maintain their data um, so that we'll be better uh, informed when we're dealing with they meet and confers or others. We'll know about what to ask for. We'll know about where to look for this information. We'll know how to advise them on how to preserve that if we have a better understanding of how they communicate. That's why this is an important uh, aspect and ties into Zublik for paralegals. Okay. How can paralegals learn more about these issues? Well, that's a, a great question. It's, um, it's a growing area, and so there's not as much information out there uh, as I would like to see, but it has definitely been growing. Um, one way, and this isn't a plug, but you can go to our website, so www.actians.com, and uh, you'll probably have that in the transcript somewhere. But go to Actians or search for Actians on the web. We've got a great amount of white papers and webinars and other resources with folks uh, that are experts in the, uh, in the industry, far more than me. 
and uh, that will allow you to really learn more about this topic. Uh, there's some resources that ARMA, which is the Records Management Association, have been tackling. So many of the seminars and events they've been having, this is starting to pop up more and more. Well, I think we're getting really close to the end now, Doug, but do you have some quick tips for paralegals to help them with this, you know, with this compliance? Yeah, I, I think um, some of the best tips I would have would be this, is that understand that people communicate in the ways that feels best to them. So we all know people that will only get on the phone. We don't email with them. Whereas my daughter, I pretty much text all the time. I rarely talk to her on the phone. And what that means is that we have to understand whether we're involved in a case or investigation or just overall in counseling our clients in terms of how they should uh, take part in their preservation duties is learning how they communicate, whether as an individual or as a company, and make sure that we have the safeguards no different than we would for email or other forms of communication in place. So I'd say understanding how people communicate is the first step. The rest would be understanding what is the duties, whether it's regulatory or it's required for litigation, and helping them kind of map out a strategy for that, making sure they don't neglect it. And third would be helping increase awareness. So many companies just don't realize that there are ways that they can preserve this information. And the saying I always use is this, and that is real-time communications, so things that are not email, Real-time communications really demand real-time compliance. So let's find the ways we can do that, whether it's, again, just using log files or simplified ways, if they're not heavily regulated, don't have a lot of litigation, or looking for programmatic ways or companies like our own to be able to help with that. But look for the best combination of education and policies as well as technology to put that framework in place so that you're protecting the communications because then you're protecting the business. Okay, perfect. Well, Doug, if our listeners want to get in touch with you or learn more about Actians, uh, how would they do that? Uh, a number of ways. As you said, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm everywhere, so chances are good you're going to run into me somewhere. <laughs> right. But, uh, but if not, our website, as I mentioned, www.actians.com. In addition to that, you should find my information there or said, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Feel free to publish my email address. If you're publishing the transcript of this, that's D. Kaminsky, with an I, at actians.com. And I'd be happy to answer any questions I can. Doug's also on Facebook, on Twitter. As I said, he's everywhere. He's literally everywhere because you never know where he's going to settle in for a day. I know he was in Chicago this week. I was probably other places, too. So uh, it, it, watch for him at your next conference. And, and if you're looking for a speaker, uh, Doug's the one to call. Lots of nice technology tips. I love speaking to these because it's an important topic, so thanks, Vicki. Sure. We're going to take another short break now, but don't go away, because when I come back, I'll have more career tips for you. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to the Paralegal Voice. This is the time of the program where I usually tell you, you know, where I'm going to be, what I'm going to be doing, and also some career tips. I do have some travels coming up, but not until the fall, so we'll talk about those another time. 
Uh, and hello to all of you who are at the NALA convention. I couldn't be there this year, so be sure to pick up the little gift I have for you. There will be people passing those out. Again, uh, before I go on to my career tip, I want to talk about the, the Zubalake uh, case that um, Doug mentioned. It is Zubalake Z, as in zebra, U-B-U-L-A-K-E, versus U-B-S Warburg LLC. Warburg is spelled W-A-R-B-U-R-G. And in that case, the plaintiff, who was Laura Zubalake, brought gender discrimination and wrongful termination suits against the defendants, which was UBS Warburg. And she sought access to email that were stored and archived by the defendants. So the um, eventually the court found in her favor, and there's, uh, there's quite a bit um, of information out there if you just... Uh, Google Zubalake. It's very interesting and will add a little bit more meaning to what Doug has been telling us uh, throughout the day. Anyway, I want to talk briefly about ethics rules uh, because the ethics rules that apply to attorneys also apply to paralegals. Now, attorneys are bound by the ethical codes that are adopted by the American Bar Association and also individual states. So a person engaged in a profession such as medicine or the law, that person is held to a higher ethical standard than the average person. That's because the higher standards are necessary to protect the public that the professional serves. So in law, the ethical standards that apply to the profession also apply to all individuals working in the profession. And whether they're the licensed professional or whether they're employed by the professional. And also it doesn't matter what title they have, whether they're the receptionist, the secretary, the paralegal, the bookkeeper, whatever, they still have to follow the ethical rules um, of the attorney. So, again, all members of the legal support staff are held to the same high ethical standards as attorneys. Now, I want to tell you that ethical rules are really quite clear when you're at work. You know, conflicts checks are routine. It's apparent who the firm is representing. Everybody understands that communications must be confidential. Um, you know what documents are usually privileged and, and so forth. But what's really important is when you're not at work, it's after hours when you're not at the office and nobody's looking and nobody's listening, that you may let your guard down and ignore the ethics obligations that follow you wherever you go. So all of your actions after hours are bound by the same ethics obligations as when you're on the job. And those acts can be just as damaging and maybe even more damaging than anything you do at the office. Uh, I'm going to give you one quick example because we really do need to wrap things up here. But say someone comes up to you at a party and they say, I know we're at a party, but I really have a quick question for you. I want to talk to you about my case. Well, you should never engage in conversations about a client's case with a client or anybody else outside the office because you never know who may overhear the conversation. If it's overheard by a third party, the conversation may lose the privilege. And you also owe the client of keeping everything about the case confidential. That's virtually impossible to do in a public place. So those are, those are things you need to be very careful of, especially when you're outside the office. So that's about all the time we have for today. I want to remind you to check out my blog. That's Paralegal Mentor 
blog.com. And also the website is paralegalmentor.com. And if you have a question for me, send that to Vicki, V-I-C-K-I, at paralegalmentor.com. This is Vicki Voison thanking you for listening to The Paralegal Voice and reminding you to make your paralegal voice heard. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to The Paralegal Voice, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Vicki Voisin for her next podcast on issues and trends affecting paralegals and legal assistants. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.